Welcome to the Congress of Forms podcast. This is your host, Christy Wampole. Can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not get the answer that you want me to. The topic of our episode today is America, a monstrous topic with an area of around 3.8 million square miles. I naively believed that I'd be able to interview six or seven people with wide-ranging opinions and that they would fit neatly into a single hour, but I've come to my senses. The first two full interviews I did, both of which you'll hear now, easily filled the time and left me somewhat overwhelmed. I realized that I'll need to grant much more space and time to the theme. So let's just consider this part one of a potentially infinite series of conversations on the United States of America. Okay, 
Ladies and gentlemen, let us now rise for the national anthem. Oh, dites-vous dans la lumière du jour le drapeau find it provocative that I've played you the national anthem in French. I hope so. I like to provoke just a little, just enough to set the mind on edge and get it moving. These women are not French. They're as American as can be. These Cajun vocalists, called Les Amis Louisianaises, come from southwest Louisiana. And I think since the American Revolution and the French Revolution were close together in time, it's not so strange to hear the American national anthem sung in French. The French translation works quite well, in my opinion, but the song is beautiful by itself. I'm a very, very big fan of the Star Spangled Banner, not for patriotic reasons, but because it's a really good song. I like it so much I wrote about it in an essay called The Glare of the Enlightenment. Uh, This is the first essay in uh, my book, the other serious essays for the new American generation, which will be coming out in June of 2015. I'd like to read a little bit of that essay now. America exists by virtue of its brilliant explosions. It's right there in the national anthem, in plain sight. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Without the pyrotechnic spectacle, the symbol of our nation would be invisible. We're like the moon, our lunar cousin, who'd remain unseen in shallow space without the sun's nuclear incandescence. The text of the American National Anthem is beautiful, all patriotism and politics aside. It has an ekphrastic quality. That is, it turns a thing, the flag, into an object of aesthetic contemplation. In this brief excerpt, the first stanza of a longer poem, Francis Scott Key sets a simple scene, The American flag survives a British bombardment in the War of 1812. By implicit extension, America survives the onslaught of its enemy. The verses evoke an unsure atmosphere in which the flag works as evidence. The Latin root of evidence, videre, means to see. So the flag works as evidence of the nation's durability. The Star-Spangled Banner, like America itself, is visual in nature. Look at it. It wants you to see. 
So here I quote uh, the, the lyrics of the national anthem. I'll just read them to remind you. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? The rocket's red glare verse is the only statement in the song. The rest is composed of questions. Ours is an interrogative anthem. Once you notice the eyes importance in the national song, you see its compatibility with our culture of looking. Really stare at these words. Can you see? Dawn's early light, twilight's last gleaming, bright stars, we watched, rocket's red glare, star-spangled. The word spangle means a small glittering piece of metal. The lights that shine in the poem are either celestial, dawn, twilight, stars, or martial, rockets, bombs. This connection between war and the heavens is everywhere in military history. Blue Angels, Desert Storm, Kamikaze, which means divine wind or spirit wind, and Blitzkrieg, which means lightning war. The word explode and the word applause share the Latin root plaudere, which means to clap. Thus an explosion can be imagined as the clapping of the hands of God. In our anthem, war and the heavens coincide through the flag a convergence that hinges on the word star, shooting star. The four-star general, the pop star, and star-crossed lovers know that stars are much more than distant suns. They can signal praise or fame or destiny. They can stand for the Red Army Faction, Starbucks, Macy's, Converse, Walmart, Satanism as a pentagram, and the Dallas Stars hockey team. Our 50 states transform into stellar abstractions on the flag's face. The nation is full of starry-eyed dreamers who've taken a shine to all that glints and glitters and detonates, but for the blindfold of broad stripes. In their book, The Dialectic of Enlightenment, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer wrote in 1944 that, quote, the Enlightenment has eradicated the last remnant of its own self-awareness, end quote. The stripes ever-broadening, block the light. Francis Scott Key had a problem with darkness. He was a pro-slavery activist who argued that the taste of the abolitionist is, quote, to associate and amalgamate with the Negro, end quote, a thought he could not bear since an amalgamation of black and white would inevitably darken the latter. This distaste for darkness, residual but there nonetheless, casts a shadow on our light-seeking anthem. The tropes of lightness and darkness, a remnant of our primordial apprehensions, still function. Light is good, knowledge, and love. Dark is evil, ignorance, and hate. But what if humans, like the implausible creatures in the Mariana Trench, had been bioluminescent from the beginning? What if we could emit light from our own bodies when we needed it? Today, prostheses like flashlights or night vision goggles or the glow from phone screens guide us in the night. 
But what if our bodies could make just the right amount of light to maneuver in the dark? I wonder how human bioluminescence would have changed our poems, our holy books, and our anthems. Without the threat of darkness, and without a stark contrast between visibility and obscurity, light would have lost most of its figurative shine. The small, green, glowing, genderless beings who hang out in Roswell and Marfa are just humans from the future with big brains and luminescent bodies saying hi to their dull-skinned ancestors who haven't yet figured out time travel. Their poems use other metaphors to make knowledge and ignorance lyrical. I conducted two lengthy interviews for this episode, the first with Paul Miles, a colleague of mine here at Princeton who taught military and diplomatic history for many years. He's a retired Army colonel and Rhodes Scholar. He did two tours of duty in Vietnam, and he's beloved by his former students and colleagues in the history department. I also had the pleasure of interviewing someone whose music is, I believe, quintessentially American. Her name is Diane Cluck and the genre of her songs is intuitive folk. I interviewed her at the edge of the woods in a little Massachusetts town along a cascading river at sunset. Paul Miles' interview will be part one, Diane Cluck's number two. But before we hear these conversations, I wanted to share an American-related talent, 
of a student who was in my class this semester in the fall of 2014. Let's have a listen. Sure, my name is Kevin Wong. I'm presently a sophomore here at Princeton. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and then went to boarding school on a little island off the west coast of Canada called Vancouver Island in a small town called Matrosen. Um, and I'm presently studying philosophy here. So you're Canadian. That's right. Yet you have this special talent that involves America. Sure. I mean, I think the one thing I realized when I came here to Princeton is Americans know very little about Canada, but in Canada, and I think indeed probably around the world, everyone seems to have this fascination with American culture, with American history. Um, and this is what kind of inspired me ultimately to learn this particular talent of mine. So tell us what your talent is. So I can, I can recite the 44 presidents of the United States in order in less than 15 seconds, sometimes less than 10. Um, and I learned this actually because I remember I did a lot of youth conferences and those kind of things when I was uh, in high school. I remember having to go around the circle and introduce yourself and say an interesting fact and people would always go, oh, I like gymnastics or my favorite color is yellow. And I always was kind of sick of saying the same cliche things. So I thought, why don't I learn this t skill especially for this purpose. So I learned to say the 44 presidents. All right, let's hear it. Sure. Washington, Adam, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adam, Jackson, Beer, and Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, McConnell, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Garford, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, H. Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. Oh my goodness. My head is spinning. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Thank you very much. America, your head's too big, because America, your belly's too big, and I love you, I just wish you'd stay In America, the land of the free, they said, and of opportunity in a just and a truthful way. But where the president Shove your hamburger 
Paul Miles came to my office one afternoon and sat down to talk to me, not knowing that he was charming me with that southern drawl that is so near and dear to my heart. Mine slips out occasionally, too, especially after a week or two back home in Texas. I asked him about his experience as a teacher of history and as a sort of protagonist of it, given his history in the military. And I asked him about his favorite American landscapes. And I asked him why Americans should study history. I'm Paul Miles. I'm a retired Army uh, colonel. Um, and I'm also retired, we might say, from civilian academe in that I uh, taught history at uh, Princeton from 1999 until uh, 2013. So that was a second career for me because I had retired from the Army in 1990 after 30 years of uh, active duty as an Army officer, starting out in the Corps of Engineers. I was a military engineer. Um, I was in the I was in Vietnam on two tours. The first one was in 1965-66, and the other was 72-73, so those were sort of like bookends of what we used to refer to as the American War in Vietnam. And uh, I was educated as an undergraduate at the United States Military Academy, West Point. And even before I went to West Point, I spent a year at the Sudl, the Military College of South Carolina. So when you add all of that up, I actually was in the military, so to speak, for 35 years. I would just say I'm reminded of a question that frequently I've been asked, maybe by Princeton alumni or maybe by West Point alumni, and that is um, how different are Princeton students and West Point students? And they frequently are taken aback when I say, well, not as different as you would anticipate. <laughs> I could take the typical West Point uh, cadet and put him in civilian clothes or put her in civilian clothes. And I think just in terms of demeanor, uh, deportment, they would blend right into um, a Princeton uh, classroom. You couldn't say the reverse would be the case precisely because some Princeton students would have to maybe lose a few pounds and sh cut their hair. Uh, in order to blend into a classroom at West Point. Um, but with regard to uh, how they respond to instruction, I have not seen marked differences. If, if I might elaborate on that point just briefly. If I had to outline some differences, the differences would be, one, West Point cadets in general are somewhat more assertive in the classroom. There's no problem in engaging them with respect to what we call classroom participation. Well, maybe that's not surprising. You don't go to the military academy if you're introverted. Everyone who goes to the military academy wants to be a leader <laughs> almost from day one. So that explains, I think, in part a kind of a competitive uh, nature, whereas in the Princeton classroom, I always had two or three students, let us say in a precept or a seminar, who were a bit reluctant to contribute, and I would have to take them aside, invite them by my office, and tell them, and I was very impressed by their essay and wondered why they hadn't offered those opinions in class. Um, then on the Princeton side, I would say, the uh, average, average Princeton student um, probably writes better than the average West Point cadet, but this could be explained in part by a very different social background. After all, still a large percentage of Princeton students come from prep schools where they got probably a lot more attention than 
would have been the case in public schools. And then beyond that, the military academy, just like the Army in general, has a very assertive affirmative action program, you know, recruiting minority students from public schools and maybe depressed areas of Cleveland and so forth. So that would account for that um, difference. And then the other big difference is that um, Princeton students, and this then, obviously this would um, inform my pedagogy up to a point, Princeton students just have a lot more flexibility with respect to what they want to concentrate on. If they want to spend all of their time on academics, they can, unless they want to play on a varsity team, unless they want to spend a lot of time on the newspaper, the Daily Princetonian, whereas at the military academy, it's very structured. And so every cadet has to participate in athletics, intramural athletics, unless they're on a varsity team. Every cadet has to um, engage in military training in the afternoon. So they simply don't have the time to maybe, I shouldn't say maybe, I would say as a rule, they do not have the time to pursue more extensively some kind of research project for a 100-page senior thesis as opposed to a research paper of 30 or 40 pages. So did you find yourself ever using personal anecdotes or things that you had experienced firsthand in your lectures? On I did, but my approach was to be very uh, restrained and uh, maybe in some ways be modest about my military background and not to reveal it in any explicit fashion or, or maybe even to refer to my own personal experience observations until the end of a course. Sometimes students were surprised because the word, after all, I was not here very long before the word got around that I had been in the Army and that I was Colonel Miles and the students who had some interest in the military, they, indeed they wanted to call me Colonel Miles as opposed to Dr. Miles or Mr. Miles or whatever. And so I know from time to time when the students um, did the written evaluations for the courses, maybe the among the, I would say, few, not necessarily negative comments, but a little dissenting uh, opinion would be, I wish that Dr. Miles would have told us more about his experience in Vietnam, or more about his experience in the Pentagon, or more about his experience uh, working for Dr. Kissinger in Paris on the Paris uh, negotiations. As Dr. Miles, or Colonel Miles, was speaking, I had the uncanny feeling that I'd heard this voice before. He reminded me of someone, but I couldn't figure out who. Someone in the military with a high rank. Someone very educated and well-spoken. Someone calm and wise and well-mannered. Who was it? As he continued to speak, I finally figured it out. He sounded like one of my favorite characters from the best American TV series that ever existed, David Lynch's Twin Peaks. He sounded like Major Briggs, father of Bobby Briggs and a friend to Agent Dale Cooper. Who is it? It's Major Briggs, Agent Cooper. Just a moment. Major? May I come in, please? I have a message for you. 
Now, I'm not at liberty to reveal the nature of my work. This secrecy pains me from time to time. Any bureaucracy that functions in secret inevitably lends itself to corruption. But these rules I have pledged to uphold, and I believe a pledge is sacred. Speaking as a man and a fellow employee of the federal government, so do I. Well, I may reveal this much. Among my many tasks is the maintenance of deep space monitors aimed at galaxies beyond our own. We routinely receive various communications, space garbage to decode and examine. They look something like this. It's radio waves and gibberish, Agent Cooper. Till Thursday night, Friday morning. Exact. Around the time that I was shot. The readout took us by surprise. Row after row of gibberish, and all of a sudden, the owls are not what they seem. Why should Americans study American history? Well, I'm very old-fashioned about that. I really do, I think in some ways we've gone too far in the other direction in not um, acknowledging that a study of American history to include the history of American institutions um, contributed to being a good citizen in, uh, <laughs> in the tradition as might have been defined by some Italian philosopher or maybe some American philosopher a um, hundred years ago. So I've never had reservations about the concept of, um, say, the university having as one of its missions, maybe, maybe somewhat explicitly as opposed to the general mission of promoting the liberal arts, um, saying that uh, an informed uh, citizen will be a better citizen in the sense of being able to engage in a more productive and informed fashion. Since this episode is about America, I was wondering if you could tell me how your view of America changed when you were at these different moments in your life. So the moment that you enter the military and you're studying at, the, at West Point, um, going to Vietnam, becoming mm -hmm. a professor, how did these different steps change your perception of the country? Uh, well, I would say that when I was growing up, now I, I was born in 1937, so I'm old enough to remember World War II, not in detail, but you know, I can remember my father pointing out headlines in the newspapers, maybe as early as 1944 and 45. I certainly remember when Germany surrendered, when, Jap when Japan surrendered, there were the celebrations up and down the streets, fire whistles uh, blowing and so forth. And then I, um, I matured in the late 40s and uh, 50s during the Eisenhower years. And I think that was a period when, um, in American society at large, I know there were always some dissenters, when the uh, concept of American exceptionalism was still very pronounced. And I would say that was the case even in the early 60s. After I graduated uh, from West Point and, and, and in 1965, 
when I did when I went to Vietnam um, for the first time, and uh, there was a tendency to, uh, you know, think very much in terms of uh, black and white with respect to the difference between United States democracy and capitalism and obviously communism and perhaps even differences with other systems that may not have been portrayed as the enemy the way uh, communism was. Um, I was in training in Florida, specialized military training in January 1961. Uh, the training was ranger training, the kind of training that um, soldiers take today if they're going into special forces or special operations. And I remember we were given a day off uh, on the occasion of John F. Kennedy's inauguration. I have a very vivid memory of sitting on my cop and cot in some old World War II barracks listening on the radio to John F. Kennedy, you know, saying, the torch has been passed to a new generation, let the whole world know that we will pay any price, bear any burden in the name of liberty. So that all added up to a very optimistic outlook. I would say, on the history of the United States, the victories of the recent past, World War II over fascism, German Nazism, fascism, Japanese militarism, very optimistic outlook on the future. And I would say when I went to Vietnam in 1965, I, I would have subscribed in general to that outlook. But to move the story along, um, given the controversy over the Vietnam War, and given at some point, let us say between 1966 and 1972, uh, my uh, having some reservations about um, what was being accomplished in Vietnam or not being accomplished and the cost of the war, not just, on the Ameri not just for the American people, but also for the Vietnamese people, um, the impact on uh, institutions lack of faith in the government, the de decline of credibility on the part of the presidency, for example, that, um, that I had a, a distinctly more mixed uh, view of some of those issues or some aspects of what we might call the American experience, as I referred to them earlier. So, I mean, I've been, often I have been asked, well, why did you go back to Vietnam the second time, when someone um, knew that I had volunteered to go back the second time, and as I said in an interview that was just recently published in a new book published by Life to, to mark the 50th anniversary of the intensified commitment in Vietnam, you know, by, by 1972 I had become something, I want to say something of a dove. I was not by any means radical in my views, like some members of the anti-war movement, but I had concluded that that particular war, that particular intervention in Southeast Asia, um, should be concluded. And, um, and you know, just by virtue of subscribing to that, as opposed to thinking exclusively in terms of winning another war and achieving something approximating victory in a traditional sense of the word, well, that obviously means that my outlook on a on a range of issues had been had been modified. Then, when I really became more of an academic, I guess I goes without saying 
that I, as I studied more and more American history, even though I certainly didn't have a simplistic outlook on the story of, of America just being one glorious uh, move toward more ideal democracy, for example, and, you know, I, I, didn't, I did not subscribe wholeheartedly to what the British called the Whig notion of history, that is to say, progress is inevitable, you know. I mean, I, I certainly knew that there had been setbacks along the way and there was a dark side to American history with respect to race relations, probably the most obvious uh, example. But nevertheless, you know, once I committed myself to academe and began to read more in detail about American history, and particularly American domestic history, because you see, my own interest just by virtue of professional background, and, and indeed my studies in the beginning had focused more on um, military and diplomatic history as I gave more attention to um, domestic history. Uh, and you know, when I, when I started teaching at Princeton, um, in, in a certain Princeton tradition, I precepted even when I had my own courses the first two or three years, I precepted for Professor Sean Wilentz his course on the New American Nation, which begins in 1789 and ends around 1850. Well, you know, there are some black spots along the way in that story. You know, the, the, on the one hand, you might say, oh, the growth of democracy uh, as the franchise is extended and the states have constitutions that maybe with respect to some issues are more liberal but there's also the growth of uh, slavery. I precepted from Jim, Professor Jim McPherson, James McPherson, in his course on the um, Civil War. I began my own course on the history of United States foreign relations at the turn of the century with the Spanish-American War, which on the one hand was called, admittedly somewhat um, ironically at the time, as a splendid little war by the Secretary of State, but a war that might have been in some ways splendid because it was so brief, the war with Spain and did lead to really victory in a military tradition. On the other hand, it led to the annexation of the Philippines and what we used to call the Philippine insurrection, which was prolonged and bloody. And well, that's an episode that uh, you know does not fit um, in the most precise fashion the story of American exceptionalism and and uh, moving toward inexorably some kind of an ideal uh, state. Read about the flood. A long time ago. town said so we're back in the east to below Mississippi one Friday evening a dark cloud rolled the raining it rained and it rained oh night and day mm -hmm. 
Bíblia tribulou. particular place or a landscape or some part of the United States that is um, meaningful to you or more significant to you than another place? For example, your hometown or a place where you lived or a certain region? First, my hometown. What's your hometown? My hometown is Metter, Georgia, about 50 miles due west of Savannah. Um, it began as what economic historians or maybe even political historians in Georgia would call a would, would describe as a railroad town in that uh, where it's located is in that part of Georgia, southeast Georgia, that was not part of the antebellum plantation belt. In other words, it was not an area where you had large plantations, slave-holding um, planters. It's not an area where you will find Greek revival uh, mansions. Uh, you would have to go like 40 miles to the north where you would find a plantation that was a prototype for um, the uh, southern plantation that is uh, uh, depicted in Stephen Vincent Benet's classic uh, John Brown's Body poem. Or if you went 40 miles to the east, you would be in the, um, the area of coastal plantations dating all the way back to the 18th century. Uh, 
uh, where planters were growing rice even before they grew cotton. And, you know, uh, 55 miles to the east is Savannah, Georgia, where there are these beautiful Regency homes designed by a promising London architect named William Jay, who came over around 1815 to design mansions for the Savannah elite, merchants and bankers and so forth. But at that time, or even at the time of the Civil War, in my part of southeast Georgia, people, some people were still living in log cabins, and others, even though they might have been living in frame houses, uh, constructed with timber that had been produced in sawmills, still uh, relatively plain. But by 1880-1890, that area was being developed. The land to the north was worn out because of the way cotton was uh, produced, and uh, these wealthy Yankees, as they might have said, came down the timber barrens and cut the pine trees, and once the pine trees were cut, then that actually facilitated opening more land for cultivation. That's why my grandfather came down from South Carolina, um, because as he told me, he went down to visit a sister who had married a gentleman who helped operate a general store in this little community called uh, Metter, and it looked like the land of milk and honey in comparison with his part of South Carolina that was worn out. But here is the story that I will tell. Whereas most of those towns sort of grew like Topsy in a manner that was not very well planned, there was a gentleman named Trapnell who owned most of the land south of the railroad and part of the land north of the railroad that had just been constructed. And so this community was beginning to develop just around the depot. So the Georgia legislature um, legislated that whenever there was a new railroad, there had to be a depot every five miles. So that essentially meant that every five miles you had a little community or a little town. But he had this vision of Metter, and that was the name of the post office. Once they established a post office, there really wasn't anything except a schoolhouse and a post office and maybe a couple of general stores, that Metter would prosper. So he brought down a um, surveyor from South Carolina and laid out this town with broad um, north-south streets with a median down the center where they planted oak trees. And in the center, Whereas in a lot of railroad towns, not only in Georgia, but Alabama and in the Midwest, the main street is like right next to the railroad tracks that go right through the center of the town. He set, he set the main streets back from the railroad so that there was this open space where you could have oak trees. And so it was, it was, a, it was a planned town just as Savannah was a planned city. When I was told the story of Trapnell, I had never heard of Mark Twain's Gilded Age collection of essays, but there is an essay in which there is a colonel out in the Midwest, colonel just because he was part of the gentry, you know, who lays out his town that way, like from scratch. And this is where the post office will be. This is where the schoolhouse will be. And this is where the courthouse will be. My town is like that. So it has a very distinctive cityscape. And when people go there, they're just surprised by how attractive it is because of that open space and the canopy trees. So my hometown has some meaning for me. Now, the other landscape, well, not surprisingly, the Hudson Valley, where West Point is located. The Hudson Valley inspired a school of art, the Hudson River School. 
when anyone goes to West Point and stands on the point, which is, a, which is this uh, bit of land that projects out into the Hudson, where the river bends, um, and just sort of looks up the river, that vista is really one of the striking vistas in the United States. I mean, it compares with some of those vistas out in the West, which incidentally are some Hudson River painters eventually painted. I mean, they started the Hudson Valley, and then because of how they were inspired by the landscape there, they also went out to paint Yellowstone and so forth. Washington, D.C., a planned city laid out by Pierre Longfont. I'm a, I always find it, in, laying aside if I have reservations about what's going on behind the walls, I find looking up the mall inspiring. I, when I drive down Constitution Avenue and I see those handsome classical revival buildings, you know, Commerce Department, Treasury Department, and so forth, I find all of that uh, moving in a way from an aesthetic point of view, laying aside whatever connections I can make with history. In between two tall mountains there's a place they call lonesome. Don't see why they call it lonesome. I'm See that bird sitting on my windowsill Well he's saying whippoorwill all the night through See that brook running by my kitchen door Well it couldn't talk no more if it was you Up that tree there's sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling In the yard I keep a pig or two they drop in for dinner like you used to do I don't stand in the need of company With everything I see talking like you Up that tree there's sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling You may think you left me all alone But I can hear you talk without a telephone I don't stand in the need of company With everything I see Talking like you See that bird setting on my windowsill Well he's saying whippoorwill All the night through Just whippoorwill All the night through In between two tall mountains There's a Paul Miles' compelling perspective on America, informed by the very atypical circumstances of his life, gave me a lot to contemplate. He thinks for himself, beyond the bipartisan silliness that is characteristic of life in the U.S. today. All the experiences that contributed in building his character and all of his contact with so many different kinds of people helped to make this truly independent mind.
There seems to be a tacit effort to standardize the American brain, to make it passive and narcissistic, to distract with all forms of products and brainlessness, to keep people from contextualizing themselves, from thinking about history and causes and effects. Back in the mid-19th century, the French thinker Alexis de Tocqueville did a lot of thinking and writing about the fresh post-revolution United States, and he made some keen observations. In the second tome of his uh, book, De la démocratie en Amérique, Democracy in America, he included a chapter called The Philosophical Method of the Americans. And I'd like to read a little bit from the beginning. So Tocqueville writes, quote, I think that in no country in the civilized world is less attention paid to philosophy than in the United States. The Americans have no philosophical school of their own, and they care but little for all the schools into which Europe is divided, the very names of which are scarcely known to them. Yet it is easy to perceive that almost all the inhabitants of the United States use their minds in the same manner and direct them according to the same rules. That is to say, without ever having taken the trouble to define the rules, they have a philosophical method common to the whole people. To evade the bondage of system and habit, of family maxims, class opinions, and, in some degree, of national prejudices. To accept the tradition only as a means of information, and existing facts only as a lesson to be used in doing otherwise and doing better. To seek the reason of things for oneself, and in oneself alone to tend to results without being bound to means, and to strike through the form to the substance. Such are the principal characteristics of what I shall call the philosophical method of the Americans. But if I go further and seek among these characteristics the principal one, which includes almost all the rest, I discover that in most of the operations of the mind, each American appeals only to the individual effort of his own understanding." End quote. So that's what Tocqueville wrote back in the 1840s. But I'm not sure this is true anymore. I don't know how many truly autonomous American thinkers are left. I guess we're all aware that America hasn't been living up to its potential in many areas. We may disagree about what needs to be fixed and how to go about fixing these things. But I think a first key step is to build up a big pool of independent brains and hearts belonging to people less interested in party lines and more interested in getting it right. Doing what intuition, common sense, and the caring soul say is right. The philosopher Simone Weil wrote, the poignantly tender feeling for some beautiful, precious, fragile, and perishable object has a warmth about it which the sentiment of national grandeur altogether lacks. A perfectly pure love for one's country bears a close resemblance to the feelings which his young children, his aged parents, or a beloved wife inspire in a man. The thought of weakness can inflame love in just the same way as can the thought of strength. I think this is very sound advice.
Police and thieves. Police and thieves. 